However, if we focus on saying there are a certain number of people who do not add value to a particular supply chain, let's get those people out of that particular supply chain. Let's retool and reskill them for the opportunities that lie in the economy today and in the future. Then what that does is it actually increases the value of everyone. Hello and welcome to another episode of the AOU podcast, Entrepreneur Leadership in Africa. I'm your host, Savannah Olo. This is season 3.0 where we explore and gain insights from mission-led leaders across the African continent and the globe. Do you have a dream you're working towards? Or maybe you're looking for the courage to finally chase it. Well, we'll give you all the insights and inspiration you need to go ahead and become world ready. On this episode, we have our guest, Charles Morito, who serves as the Director of Government Affairs and Public Policy of the Sub-Saharan Africa region at Google. Today, we highlight the role of government and public policy in Africa's digital transformation. We discuss key things such as what digital sprinters are. We also talk about the need to access physical capital for Africa's innovation to prosper and more. Do you know what a digital sprinter is? Have you thought of the possibilities and opportunities that come with applying the right policy framework in African economies? Well, Charles is here to inform you on all the tools needed for this. So I suggest you buckle up and prepare your mind for all the gems of knowledge we're about to drop. I know I am. So Charles, thank you so much for taking time out to be with us on the ALU podcast today. Um, it's a pleasure to meet you as well. So um, maybe you can introduce yourself and then we can get into the icebreaker of the day. Yes. Hi, Sav. Uh, my name is Charles Morito and I lead government affairs and public policy at Google in Africa. All right. Great. So to kick off the episode, we usually um, start off with an icebreaker just to get you comfortable. And so the audience can also know a bit more about yourself. And you launched a Cartoon Network Animation Academy at one of your previous roles. What was your favorite cartoon character and why? My favorite cartoon character, I think, to date uh, has to be uh, Gumball. And uh, Gumball uh, is from a TV show that bears the same name. And uh, in, in particular, um, the, the character is just extremely... Uh, naughty but yet driven um, but still has this sort of angelic and naive view to the world um, okay. so I think it's uh, sort of a mix of different um, sort of likable um, characters with a little bit of mischief sprinkled uh, into it and therefore uh, I always love uh, that particular character. Okay, so would you say that you relate to the character or you find the character relatable to everyone else outside? I would hope that the character is relatable uh, right. to, to most people and also the fact that um, I think we all have a mix of uh, all the different uh, aspects uh, of it um, because, you know, sometimes... Um, we, we also don't want to take life too seriously. And I think that I'm a big believer in enjoying life as uh, you, you move along. It's really about the, 
journey, but not always. Uh, I think sometimes we focus too much on the destination and not the journey and enjoying the journey. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, I saw Cotton Network and I instantly went back to back in the day when my brother and I used to literally fight over the remote <laughs> on who's going to watch, watch what and Cartoon Network would always win. On what Network. was your favorite uh, Cartoon Network show? I think I have several, but I, I love the ones that used to come like late at night. Surprisingly, I really enjoyed Mega XLR. That's a good show. Um, and yeah, it was, was uh, fixing cars and everything. <laughs> absolutely. So that's that's a fantastic show as well. All right. So getting into um, the session today, and as the director of government affairs and public policy at Google in Sub-Saharan Africa, in your opinion, what are the three main obstacles to Africa's prosperity that require urgent policy making and policy amendments? Thank you so much, Savannah. That's a really good question because at Google, one of the key things that we're really keen on is to see how Africa can be able to achieve its economic uh, opportunity and potential and realizing that. And so there's, we've spent a lot of time looking at uh, the different areas whereby governments as well as private sector um, can work closely together to ensure that we're solving some of the challenges that face the continent. And one of the areas that we are struggling with is uh, human capital. And this is around skills development and really having the right skills for the right jobs for both today and in the future. The second thing that I would point out is uh, physical capital. And this is really looking at how do we get more Africans being able to access the internet affordably. And this is really critical because when you think about how the opportunity online bears itself, it's important for all Africans to be able to access the internet equitably. So solving for that affordability issue is uh, a point that we need governments as well as private sector to work closely on. And then the last thing that I would touch on is around technology itself. And this is uh, ties into having the right frameworks um, that encourage uh, innovation, uh, adoption of things such as artificial intelligence, not just for technology, but really across the economy. Uh, so for instance, if you think about tourism, how can we be able to leverage AI to be able to reach the best uh, and the most interested uh, people in your particular country? Therefore, you can be able to grow tourism in that country. Uh, and uh, for instance, if you take another example on AI specifically, is around agriculture. How can we leverage AI to uh, direct us to be able to get the right uh, inputs, whether it's the right uh, seeds, the right fertilizers, uh, the right temperatures and planting season, so that you can get the best outputs uh, from an agriculture perspective. And all of these things really help the growth of the economies across the continent. Uh, so those are just three things that I would touch on. And uh, they, they, they are actually captured in a white paper that we did uh, called okay. Digital Sprinters. And we believe okay. that if governments really think through this, 
uh, they will be able to uh, really accelerate their economies. There's a fourth pillar, which is around competitiveness. Okay, all right. So you've you've briefly mentioned um, digital sprinters, and we will get into that. But before we get into that, um, Google published an article talking about opportunities for digital sprinters. What do you think the inspiration for that was? Um, essentially now identifying that issue and having to voice it out the way it was voiced out? So when we were thinking about digital sprinters, the motivation was looking at like economies across what we call emerging markets. And those emerging markets stretch across uh, Latin America to Middle East through Africa uh, and beyond. Um, So countries such as Argentina, Brazil, Uh, Colombia, Kenya, uh, Israel, uh, Nigeria, and even uh, South Africa and Turkey. And what we wanted to do is look at the various economies uh, in those countries, look at what is similar about those economies, and what could be able to accelerate their growth so that they can really leverage the opportunity that the digital economy can be able to unlock. And so that was really the motivation. And when we thought through that, uh, we saw that there are a couple of uh, really interesting uh, pillars that tie into a couple of uh, key buckets. Um, And one of those uh, pillars is really thinking about how do you create a shared economy, uh, especially for non-service sectors. And encouraging that shared economy, uh, you really can be able to accelerate uh, the the utility of of, of various sectors. So uh, an example for that is um, if you can be able to look at the Internet of Things, for instance, and leverage that to get smallholder farmers to aggregate their produce and then leveraging an app or a platform, reach the marketplace and then be able to monitor every single facet of the the supply chain all the way to the end consumer. What that does is it creates a much better uh, opportunity in terms of the, the farmer making more money in terms of at the supply point, but Mm -hmm. also the end consumer paying less because there's a a reduction or a collapse in the number of middlemen that will be uh, sort of uh, coming through the value chain, but actually not adding much value through that supply chain. I I hope that answers the question. Yeah, true. But I do have to ask, I'm curious though, um, at this point we're dropping middlemen and, you know, sort of like reducing costs for some people, um, increasing revenue for others. What happens to middlemen? Wouldn't that be, uh, to a certain extent, um, increasing unemployment, if you think about it? No, it doesn't increase uh, unemployment, um, but it does increase opportunities. So if you, uh, okay. so the earlier point that I had made mm-hmm. was this point around 
uh, around digital skills and uh, and skilling, upskilling um, the current population to be ready for the opportunities of both today and the future. So if we focus on one element, but not the whole facet of seeing the things that we need to do, yes, there are certain people who will be left out and will not have opportunities. However, if we focus on saying there are a certain number of people who do not add value to a particular supply chain, let's get those people out of that particular supply chain. Let's retool and reskill them for the opportunities that lie in the economy today and in the future, then what that does is it actually increases the value of everyone. So mm -hmm. on the agricultural example that I gave, the, the, the producers make more money, the end consumer pay less. Therefore, there's value on both sides. But then the middlemen who are not adding value to that particular supply chain do something else that is valuable and that delivers revenue for them because there is no shortage in terms of the number of opportunities that the digital economy presents. The right. only challenge and what holds us back and what will hold us back as a continent is the lack of skills to be able to leverage those opportunities that the digital economy will bring forth. Great. So I'm seeing how this ties back to the first point that you made, talking about human capital, physical capital and technology, as well as competitiveness, which you mentioned briefly. So I, I, I see how it comes together. So we have to look at it from a holistic approach, if, if I'm understanding what you're saying. That is absolutely correct. So when you think about it, the, the digital sprinters framework that we articulated, and I would encourage the listeners and the audience of this podcast to uh, search digital sprinters uh, on right. Google, is that you get to see how it's all intertwined. And it's not really a matter of one element or the other, um, but when you apply the different elements uh, into an economy, you then see an uplift of everyone. The, ex the, the phrase I love to use is that a rising tide raises all boats. And we believe that the adoption of a digital sprinters framework, when it comes to the digital economy, will rise uh, everyone's uh, boat, so to speak. All right. Thank you so much for elaborating on that. Um, we've mentioned digital sprinters over and over and over. And I'm sure like people are wondering, what is a digital sprinter? Who are they? What do they do? <laughs> what is that about? So who, is, who are digital sprinters and how are you engaging stakeholders like the government and private sector to implement these suggested policies to support African entrepreneurs? So digital sprinters was a term that we coined that refers to emerging economies across the world. And the thesis behind this is that if we're able to if, if these economies, if these emerging economies around the world become more digital and embed digital into the different facets of their economy, then right. what will happen is that they will sprint ahead of the current pace of economic growth or development, so to speak. So right. think about it in terms of how uh, I, I think... We, in, in Africa, especially when you think about the mobile technology revolution, we always say that Africa leapfrogged communication. And we went from not having landlines into almost everyone 
or a majority of the population having um, mobile phones. And right. now we're seeing a really great growth in terms of the adoption of smartphones on the continent. So yeah. we're using this same thesis to say, if these emerging economies become more digital inherently in terms of all the different facets that they look at, and I, I would love to touch on a couple of those different things. So oh, if, this, if, if this economy is from a financial services standpoint become digital, from an agriculture and food perspective, they become digital. They digitize the infrastructure itself and some of the facets of infrastructure and make sure that right. digital is embedded in that. Government services are actually uh, becoming digital, etc. What then happens is that they, they are able to deliver greater efficiencies across the economy. So for instance, if a company, someone wants to start a company in Rwanda or South Africa or Kenya or Nigeria or Senegal, by digitizing government services, you will be able to literally start that company with the register and get the company going within a couple of hours, as opposed to having to go down to the city council, taking some forms, running down to the registrar's office, submitting some of those forms back, going back to perhaps uh, the, the central bank or an, a, an affiliate of the central bank where yeah. you pay the dues. So you keep running around. And in essence, what that does is that all those inefficiencies cost the business money. They increase yeah. the registration and the setting up of a business. So our view is that if you deliver full adoption of an economy and digitize that, then one of the benefits that will happen is that you will see an uplift in terms of both the acceleration of GDP growth because of that, the lowering of inefficiencies, the lowering of costs, which then for a business increases profitability. When a business is more profitable, they can reinvest more of that money to look at different opportunities, create more jobs, etc. So holistically, we believe that these economies then become digital sprinters. So that's where the term uh, came from. At AOU, we believe in missions, not majors. This is why we are introducing a new program called the Bachelors of Entrepreneurial Leadership. It is a one-of-a-kind program equipping you to be consequential and ignite a ripple of change in the world. Are you looking to become the ultimate problem solver? An entrepreneur leader that makes all the difference in the community and the world? Join AOU and begin your entrepreneurial journey. To learn more about Bachelors of Entrepreneurial Leadership, visit our website www.aoueducation.com. Come lead a mission-led life. All right, great. Thank you so much for that elaborate explanation. I, I wouldn't have thought about it from that perspective, but yet it's 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 coming together. So I can see that um, being a digital sprinter or being part of a digital sprinter. Um, you also have to look at the value of time and money to increase that efficiency and effectiveness of the adoption of technology, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. Absolutely. In, 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 in effect, what you're trying to do is reduce the inefficiencies 
within the, 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 the economy. You're being able to accelerate the adoption of technology to help impact both skills development, uh, competitiveness in the market, uh, the adoption of technology itself. And, and, and so part of that adoption of technology means that uh, hopefully you can see a lowering of the cost of access into the internet, et cetera. So that's the way we think about it more holistically. All right, great. So um, we've talked about um, digital sprinters and now we can look at the opportunities. And within that article that I already mentioned earlier, um, there was a mention or um, uh, explanation of what the right policy framework would look like if digital sprinters adopted it, um, which would allow them to be ideal launching pads for future innovation. So how did this framework come about? So on this particular framework, uh, I'll be a bit granular, so if you may indulge me. Uh, we think about it from a four-pillar perspective. The first pillar right. is around human capital. And on this particular one, and I think our, 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 our listeners will, will be keen to hear about this, is really about fostering digital skills development so that when companies start up, they can really think about how do they establish a digital company and a digital okay. Uh, startup. And, and what that does is that it also addresses labor market discrimination. And what that means really is how do we ensure that people in various parts of a country, no matter where they are, they have access to employment. And that is something that's really important. So I'll give two examples on this particular piece. The first one is saying, if you can be able to get people to understand the opportunities that lie within the digital ecosystem, then they can be able to do work that may not necessarily be in their immediate surrounding by leveraging online jobs. So someone, for instance, in um, a remote part of DRC, let's say Eastern DRC, can be able, if they have access to the internet, be able to go on Fiverr, look at jobs which they may, they may be skilled for, whether it's transcribing, whether it's web design, whether it's graphic design, and they can be able to do that job digitally. Submit that job. The customer may be in Germany. The customer may be in the US. The customer may be in uh, the UK, for instance. But they have an equal playing field because what they're selling are their skill sets. When yeah. they do that job, they then get paid right back to their local neighborhood without having to go beyond whether to a big city, et cetera. And the digital payments platforms is something that can be able to enable that, right? So, so when you think about that, the most critical piece on that is the skill set. As long as you have those skills, you can be able to take those jobs. The second example I wanted to give is uh, someone who manufactures T-shirts, uh, let's say here in Nairobi. Right. That person from day one can be a global business. And all they need to do is understand the opportunity that the digital ecosystem and e-commerce presents to them. They can create a really good marketing campaign, target people who love T-shirts in California, in Vancouver, or in Australia, and then sell to those people get paid digitally through um, digital payments, 
and then they can ship those T-shirts to any of those markets. And the way that the logistics and, 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 and the, the supply chain system looks like today is that within three or four days, you can literally get any package from Nairobi to New York, to LA, to Sydney, and have it delivered to the end consumer. So that is the first pillar around human capital and people having the right skills to take advantage of the opportunity that the digital ecosystem provides. The second piece that I would love to touch on is this notion of affordability of accessing the internet, which lies under the physical capital. And on this particular piece, what we're looking at is saying that technology is advancing at a rapid state. You have connectivity that's being delivered either through 5G now that we're talking about or other uh, physical infrastructure projects such as subsea cables. But one of the critical things is how people start delivering a shared infrastructure model. And what that shared infrastructure model presents is that the affordability to access the internet goes down because not every company is trying to lay fiber or own the digital spectrum um, the, the spectrum or um, build or lay fiber uh, in, in a particular city. When you have that shared infrastructure, then most end companies become sales and marketing organizations and not capex organizations. And so the idea is that the end consumer should benefit from that. Then the other pillar is around technology. And I touched on this briefly at the beginning in terms of the adoption of technology such as artificial intelligence. Um, But two areas that I didn't touch on um, much is the move and encouraging the move to cloud. And even a small organization, a startup, should be able to leverage cloud platforms to store their data, to be able to deliver analytics from the data that they're consuming, which then enables them to really think through how they leverage and reach more consumers, deliver more value out of every single consumer. And that's an important facet of cloud. And then something that I touched on when I was saying, talking about the human capital and a tool that we require is the enablement of inclusive payments ecosystems. Um, Mm -hmm. So for instance, there's an open source payment platform called Modulup, um, which is an open source platform that enables uh, other companies or different businesses to build their payment uh, platforms on top of that or right on top of Modulup. And so that is a really important piece that can help companies really create and and adopt uh, digital payments uh, easily, um, just like Android did for the the, uh, web and the mobile phone uh, ecosystem. And then last but not least is competitiveness. This is a really important piece because, and, and, and government has a really key role to play on this because what we need is to ensure that across Africa, we see the adoption of balanced competition policies across the board. The African Continental Free Trade Agreement is a fantastic example of a tool and a framework that can be able to 
help speed up the adoption of greater competitiveness across the continent, um, commitment to open digital trade, uh, and as I had mentioned, the advancement of a digital government. Uh, so those are the four key areas that I believe that uh, the digital sprinters framework, adopting that will really help most African countries really become those digital sprinters or leapfrog uh, the economic growth that we anticipate that can be had through the uh, digital ecosystem. All right. So this may be um, off, off topic right now, but it's just, um, um, uh, uh, what's it called? A quick fire question. So you mentioned um, Modulup. In your opinion, do you think it could be the next PayPal of Africa? So that's a great question. Um, but how Modulup works, it, it actually is, you can have PayPal right on top of Modulup. So okay. what Modulup is, it enables interoperability across the different countries. So for instance, if Malawi, Kenya, Rwanda, Nigeria, South Africa, um, various countries adopt Modulup for the, um, the, the central banking systems and okay. the real-time payment systems across all of those countries, then you can have a PayPal actually ride on top of Modulo so that they can be able to build that on top. So it is not taking the place of a PayPal or becoming the next PayPal. What it yeah. is, is the enabler of different payment platforms that can ride on top of that. So think about it, uh, for instance, in the same vein of the Android ecosystem or the Android platform when it comes to mobile phones. So okay. the Android mobile, uh, 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 the, the Android OS, what that does is it enables various mobile phone manufacturers to manufacture their devices using the Android OS. And then anyone, any developer that creates an app, whether it's an app as big as Facebook or it's an app that just serves a small community in a remote part in uh, Chad or Malawi or Kenya, right. all of them can ride on top of the Android ecosystem. So that's the way Moja Loop is. It really is an open source uh, payments foundational uh, platform. All right, great. Thank you so much for that. Um, it, was, it was running through my head because today I was thinking about how um, I needed money from my brother um, in Kenya. And I'm in Mauritius currently, and I'm like, how do we make this easier? There needs to be a synergy, and PayPal can't be the only uh, platform that we can use to transfer money. I mean, he has maybe access to M-Pesa, and I have access to a different bank. How do we um, create that synergy and ensure that you know the transaction is as pan African and as easy as possible. So, like, I, I can see, I can see how things work here. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think you you nailed it on the head. So, an organization in Mauritius and an organization in Kenya, if they are both riding on Modulo Loop, then what that does, what it enables, is the real time uh, payments switches that will talk to each other. And so when he presses send in Kenya and sends you money, you will receive it in Mauritius almost instantaneously. Um, so, and that's the power of Modulo Loop. 
All right, great. So back to the episode. <laughs> um, we're going to touch a bit more on the policy framework and competitiveness is one of the key areas of this framework that you mentioned. Um, what policies should be should be in place in Africa to promote open markets, interoperable regulatory standards, and predictable tax regimes? So there's a couple of key areas that we should be thinking about when uh, looking at um, the, the open markets as well as the tax policies. Um, and it, it, the way I think about it is really making sure that, for instance, the data protection acts and the data localization acts that many governments are looking to pass are really thoughtful in terms of how they allow for cross data flows. They allow for companies to be able to set up a business, say, for instance, in Mauritius or in South Africa. But as we're scaling those businesses, that they can be able to leverage the data that sits in one country while they are in another. Because, for instance, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, let's take uh, an organization uh, such as Twiga Foods, which is a supply chain um, a B2B uh, tech-enabled business uh, here in Kenya. What right. that organization is doing is that they do collect a lot of data about farmers, about um, their trades, the end uh, uh, business people, the kiosk owners, etc. Now, that information is information that is really useful from an analytics perspective as they continue to grow across the continent, if that is their ambition. And so if you do not have open uh, data laws whereby a, an organization such as Twiga Foods can be able to access that information when they move to Tanzania or Uganda or Rwanda or Nigeria or Ghana, then what right. that does is that it hampers those, the growth of that particular organization. And we're not saying that you should just have a blanket policy that allows for everything. Because at the core of it, you also need to think about the protection of the privacy of the end consumer. So I think it's really thinking about the adoption of policies that really have two things at heart. The end consumer, i.e. the user, and okay. two, the adoption of innovation and the acceleration of innovation so that our companies in Africa can be able to grow, especially when you think that very few markets and single countries in Africa have a large enough base to build a billion-dollar business uh, across various sectors. So I think that it's important for us to think about Africa not just from a border perspective or an intra-border perspective, but really look at the marketplace from the 1.3 billion Africans that we have on the continent and the opportunity that that 1.3 billion Africans present for businesses and startups and entrepreneurs across the continent. Okay, so um, we've touched on competitiveness, now looking at physical capital. Um, an example would be connectivity and digital infrastructure. 
Um, the way spectrum is managed leads to high internet costs in many African countries. From a policy perspective, how can this accelerate affordable access to the internet? I think you already touched on this earlier, but maybe you can add on to something that you already mentioned earlier. Yes, thanks for that question, and I'm happy to uh, touch on it a little bit deeper. And, and the example I want to give is actually one of a company um, that Google was a, a, a founder of. It's the company is called C Squared. And C-Squared's mission is to lay fiber infrastructure across the continent and drive that from a shared infrastructure perspective. And what we've seen with, with C-Squared is they built and they've laid fiber. The initial country was Uganda. And when they did that, they had various ISPs leverage the C-Squared infrastructure to serve their customers uh, at the end of the 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 the, inf the the fiber, and so what's powerful about this is that if an ISP who historically had to go out lay their fiber, then connect that to the end consumer, if they don't have to invest in the massive capital expenditure outlay, <clears throat> and what they need to do is really think through the services and products that they offer, and they can buy various um, capacity on that fiber that has already been deployed by an organization like C-Squared, then naturally speaking, you should be able to see the cost of uh, connectivity and data drop for the consumer at retail. Right. And I think that that's the power of really thinking through shared infrastructure spectrum sharing uh, and the like uh, across the continent because the, the cost of laying fiber or building other connection uh, infrastructure is just extremely expensive. And um, we, I think we should find ways of lowering that cost. And I think the same applies to telcos, whereby instead of every single telco building their own towers across the continent, you can have tower operators uh, such as Helios Towers or American Towers uh, Company, ATC. They own the tower and then uh, different telcos within a particular market can all put their masts on that particular tower and then be able to uh, drive connectivity to people in that particular area. So that lowers the capital uh, expenditure investment uh, at the top. Okay, thank you so much for that. Um, so how are governments in Africa getting engaged to implement such frameworks? And, you know, by 2030, digital transformation could generate as much as $3.4 trillion of in economic value um, in this digital sprinter market. So what are your thoughts on that? So governments are being quite open to this, and I have had several engagements. Last year in November, uh, we worked on uh, um, an AU infrastructure uh, workshop with ministers of infrastructure across Africa. And I think for me, that was a great opportunity to see how various ministers of infrastructure are thinking through uh, how to accelerate 
the growth and the, the building of infrastructure across the continent so that right. our citizens can be able to benefit. Uh, we're also having engagements uh, at, for instance, uh, the film and publication boards level, uh, the ministries of ICT, uh, looking at how we cooperate. And I'm talking about private sector cooperation with various ministries when it comes to uh, en enabling um, digital skills growth and other skills for many other um, countries across the continent. So when I look at the way the government has been open, uh, it's really encouraging. And perhaps one other example I would like to give is around COVID. Last okay. year was an incredibly challenging year for most of us on the continent. And I know that a lot of, a lot of countries and governments worked very closely with private sector to both alleviate some of the challenges that many citizens were facing when it mm -hmm. comes to the COVID crisis, unemployment, et cetera. And, and I think that that showed a, a willingness by government to be ready. Are we where we need to be? No. But I think that the willingness is there and we will continue to see greater cooperation between private sector and government to advance and truly take advantage of the economic value that that the digital economy, uh, the digital uh, ecosystem poses for both African countries, but also other emerging economies around the world. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that. Um, so you had mentioned earlier, you, you've been mentioning throughout the episode today um, that technology should be adapted in like... Um, industries such as agriculture, and you really highlighted in agriculture. So I am curious, in another life, are you a farmer? Are you an investor in agriculture? <laughs> Is it something that you would pursue? Absolutely. And not only in another life, I, uh, since you asked, I grew up on a farm in Kenya. I, okay. um, I, I, I really love the opportunities that farming presents. And I think that when you think about the growth of the population in 20, 30 years, one of the most critical areas that we're going to be thinking through is the area of, of food and food right. uh, security. And I really think through the notion of leveraging technology uh, to really increase outputs uh, from a farming scale. So... I, what I would say is for the people who are listening to this uh, podcast, I, I would highly encourage young people to think through how ag and ag tech can really change the future for Africans. And also think about it this way. Africa could be the breadbasket for the world. And so we could, in essence, increase productivity lower the cost of output, and really feed the world. And that excites me massively. Right. All right. So be more selfish and care for others is the topic of the TED Talk you presented in 2018. What did you mean by that? I cannot believe that you've been fishing around the internet to find this, <laughs> but... <laughs> we have to do a due diligence, you know. <laughs> I clearly see that you've done it very well. 
So when I said be more selfish and care right. for others, the, the thesis of it was driven out of a concern for how we as human beings sometimes really think about our own prosperity. And dare I say that sometimes we feel or I see a notion whereby people feel that if, for instance, I succeed, then you must have failed or vice versa. And so the thinking around that is that if you want to really help yourself, you will need to fundamentally help others. And so when you think about it, I I, I want to give an an example. I, I love illustrations. So If you live in a country whereby you're one of 10 people who are well off, can put food on the table, and you're surrounded by a million people who cannot do that. At the end of the day, those people, you you yourself will not sleep well at night because you will be worried that those people will come rob you, steal from you, Um, et cetera, et cetera. You will fear for your life. And therefore the thesis of saying, be more selfish and care for others came from the thought that if saying that it is the right thing to help each other on a day-to-day basis, that should be the fundamental element of being human, right? Humanity is built on that. When you think about Africans, we talk about it takes a village to 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 raise a child. Right. There's another saying that says one hand washes the other, right? Yeah. All of these things that we've grown up with are about community. However, Ubuntu, essentially, yeah. Ubuntu absolutely. Yeah. However, somehow, somewhere along the way, we've lost that. So my appeal is that if I cannot appeal to people to help each other because that is the right thing to do, then you know what? Help others because it helps yourself, right? So that's why I came up with that phrase of be more selfish and care for others because the more you care for others, it actually comes back to benefit you as an individual. Great. And, you know, you were talking about that. I just remembered something I was told when I was about 11 or 12. And it's um, one of my teachers asked us in class, he's like, why do you think Kenyans um, usually build walls, like very high walls around their neighborhoods? Whereas when you look at um, first world countries, you live in cul-de-sacs and there's barely a gate that separates you from the next house. And we're like, this 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 topic, your TED Talk topic, perfectly <laughs> aligns with that analogy. Absolutely. When I was doing the research for that TED Talk, and if you can, please watch it. It's I, I think it's still on YouTube. One <laughs> of the things that the, one of the things that I, I saw as a stark reminder is that in most posh neighborhoods around the world. Close to them is an informal settlement because what happens is that most of the people who work in those posh neighborhoods need to live somewhere nearby, right? Right. And most of them tend to walk to work. 
So they can't live too far off. So if you take Kenya, for instance, Mothaiga is right next to Madare. Yeah. When you go to Cape Town, you have the same phenomenon. When you go to Nigeria, you have the same phenomenon. When you go to Mexico City, you have the same phenomenon. And so it is not just a Kenyan challenge, but it's almost this situation whereby you have people who are really struggling living to those who are very well off. And if you do not take care of those people who are struggling, then you have to build those high walls. And in essence, you're just living in a prison. I completely agree. (laughs) All right. So with that said, unfortunately, we have, this is all the time we have for our episode today. Um, Any last words for our audience? I think... Based on the audience that I was told who will listen to this, the the thing I would love to encourage the young entrepreneurs is to think about a couple of things. Um, One is to really live your life in terms of your entrepreneurship life and journey as a child again. And when you look at children, the way children grow up is they are absolutely persistent They are patient and they never give up. And to me, that is one thing that I would just love to close by saying, as you go and embark on your entrepreneurial journey, be patient, be persistent, and never give up. Great. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you for the time that you've given us today and the gems you really dropped and the insights into um, the digital sprinters and the policy frameworks and what have you. I'm actually looking forward to listening back to this episode today. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you, Alex, for making this possible. I really appreciate you asking me to do this. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. We just had Charles Murito, the Director of Government Affairs and Public Policy of the Sub-Saharan Africa region at Google, whose mission is to demystify the role of government and public policy in Africa's digital transformation. We hope you got a glimpse of what Charles is secretly passionate about. And who would have guessed that Gumball was his favorite cartoon character? What is your mission and what are you doing to achieve it? At AOU, we believe in supporting young leaders as they declare their mission and embark on a journey to achieve it. If you already have a mission or feel you are ready to declare your mission, then AOU is a place for you. Visit our website at www.aouducation.com to apply to AOU. Remember, you can tune into our podcast on Spotify, Anchor, and Apple Podcasts. This is the AOU Podcast, Entrepreneur Leadership in Africa, Real Stories, Real Experiences.